This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in. Whether you are listening on your radio or you are tuning into our podcast, we appreciate your time. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You sound perky. I am. <laughs> it's science on a Sunday. How could I not be excited? There you go. Dr. Linden, less perky. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm perky. You're perky? Are you perky? Uh, I'm okay. Aw. I'll be okay. Once we start talking about science, I'll be fine. Yeah, I get excited. Dr. Ray. Dr. Shane. Yeah, here we go. See, I've started something bad. <laughs> Liv's doing our Twitter feed, folks, so you can follow that uh, if you don't want to listen to the sound of our voice. Um, although that would be a problem because it is a radio show. We have two, uh, we have three great guests, actually, coming in to talk about two different topics later in the show. But we're going to start off with news as per usual. And Dr. Crystal, I'm going to start with you. Mm. What have you got for us? I saw a, a cute little story this week about how plants get by with a little help from their microbe friends. Um, it's research that's come out of uh, the US from Berkeley Lab and UC Berkeley about how plants, um, you know, it's kind of like how they uh, make friends and influence microbes um, in that they can, plants can actually cultivate their own personal soil microbiome, if you mm. like. So people might have heard about the effects of the microbiome, you know, in the human gut. You know, well, the microorganisms have an amazing effect on the hu- on the soil for plant um uh, for plant growth and for soil health. And so previously, you know, there was this idea that plants are sort of consistently selecting or suppressing different types of microbes in the soil to suit their own growth conditions. Um, and they were like, well, how is this happening? How, how are plants actually actively curating the microbes around them in their root zone, as it's called? And, um, and so this paper actually looks at the mechanism And it turns out the plants are actually actively secreting some of the preferred food sources of the microbes that are going to uh, provide the best soil nutrition and and growth environment for the plants. Mm. And so uh, the researchers looked um, genetically at the microbes to look at what their preferred nutrient sources were. And then they actually did an analysis of the soil, but also of the plant um, metabolism and biochemistry and linked all those three things up. So the plants, the soil and the microbes and worked out that, you know, the plants are secreting what the microbes like to eat, attracting the right microbes for the right times and actually improving um, the soil health and the plant growth. And I thought it's a fantastic example of the ways in which some of these um, interactions are happening at a molecular level and we can actually learn a ton from plants. And some of the discov- the basic discoveries made in plants around things like the way plants protect themselves from viruses have also you know, been really influential in understanding the human immune system. And maybe we could get some insights from the way in which plants are curating their own microsoil biomes and start to understand more about about how that might happen in other systems. But also, importantly, um, for food and agriculture production into the future, the more understanding we have about how we can have better uh, soil uh, health and how that can help plant growth and plant yields, you know, going forward, it's, it's fantastic mm. to be able to actually understand this at a molecular level. Imagine being able to just plant plants that are not only going to grow and grow well, but they're also going to improve the soil that they're growing in. So, so where my mind goes immediately on this is not the single single species but the multiple types of plants you can plant together and how they interact because it seems as though the real optimization will come from from that you know mm. where where they, they bounce off each other you know like this plant does that really well but you know it's not so good at this part of the soil you know and so you you start linking them together and understanding that complexity then all of a sudden that's where you get not just 
you know, simple linear improvements, but orders of magnitude improvements in what you can do. Absolutely. This study is done in grass, like mm. one species one of species, grass. Yeah. And if you can start to understand how, I can't remember the gardening term, but there is actually, you know, a, a real tradition of being able companion to... Companion plants. Companion yeah. planting. Yeah. And you can imagine, you know, maybe there's molecular mechanisms that actually yeah. underlie that kind of tradition. So I, I've always thought of companion planting, though, as above the soil. Like, you know, you, you plant flowers near your vegetables and so forth to bring in the bees and, you know, all this sort of stuff. I haven't thought of it from the point of view of below the soil, yeah. which is, is such so a, a fascinating area. Do we circumvent plant selectivity when we put poo on them? I mean, fertilizer? Maybe. Although, I mean, because you're putting an off, you're putting a very, very set of, of yeah. microbes there. I think it's more likely yeah. that when you spray them with vast quantities of chemicals, you wreck this plant version of the microbiome. Well, but, I, but I also think that if we can start to understand which metabolites the plants are putting into the soil to attract which kinds of microbes, the mm. more we can harness that knowledge. And, and, you know, can you select or breed or modify for plants that actually do that better? Um, and you know, and what does that mean going forward for yeah. agriculture? Because because soil um, productivity is is in decline um, globally, yeah. and so if we can understand how to um, have more productive, healthier soil, uh, I think it's going to be a real boost for agriculture. That's, anyway, it was just a great. really nice way in looking at how yeah. um, plants uh, can really um, make a difference in their environment without having to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they just they just stay there and they let the microbes come. They're very again, smart, aren't they? Yeah, once again, nature. Yeah. than we are at this stuff. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Dr. Linden, what do you got for us? Well, this week, Dr. Shane, I've really been getting into hookworm. Sorry, um, what? what I've, been the? Ge- I've been getting into hookworm. You've been getting hookworm? No, I've been, I've been getting into hookworm. <laughs> they're not getting into you? No, they're not getting into me. So hookworm is uh, it's a, it's a health risk. It affects about 500 million people across the world, mm. mainly in the tropics and the subtropics, and it's this tiny little worm, you know, thinner than a, like a thin hair, and it lives in the soil. It comes from our, comes from our poop, and it lives in the soil and then it comes up through people's feet, gets up through their circulation system, goes into their lungs and then it makes a way into the small intestine where it just just lives there, munches munches away, mm. munches on people's blood and it can cause diarrhoea, it can cause anemia, issues with um, pregnancy or slow growth and development in children. Right, So it's got quite a nasty hmm. uh, component of it. But in the last few years, uh, researchers have also spent a lot of time looking at how hookworm can help deal with diseases, sort of immune diseases like Crohn's disease, asthma, yeah. uh, allergies yeah. and these kinds of things because the hookworm lives in us, right? And it, um, you know, it lives... It's a parasite. It lives kind of symbiotically with us. Exactly. And so to do that, it kind of suppresses our immune system a little bit, which some researchers and a lot of people have suggested it can help deal with these different kind of diseases. And in the last couple of years, there's a group in James Cook, up at James Cook University that do a lot of research on this. They've been trying to tease out the protein that does the good stuff to us because people just want the good hookworm uh, side effects, not the bad hookworm Mm. side effects, Mm. right? So... Well, there's different researchers looking at this and how to develop an asthma treatment based on some hookworm components. And a paper has come out this week in PLOS One Pathology. Uh, these researchers were looking at the hookworm, trying to develop an asthma, uh, not a cure, but an asthma sort of uh, thing. And they found that instead they've developed a bit of a, a hookworm vaccine component or maybe one step towards developing a hookworm vaccine component because what they normally think is that these hookworms come up through us and then get into our small intestine and then they start feeding on our blood. But these guys, it's a group of researchers from New Zealand and Australia and the US, have found that the hookworm actually starts sucking our blood from about three days in while it's still in larval form. They did a bit mm. of uh, quite a few mice trials and they found yep. that it starts sucking our blood earlier. So now they uh, applied some anti-malarial um, some qu- quinonine, quinonone, 
Dr. Crystal? Anti-malarial drugs. Yeah. Anti-malarial yeah. drugs. That's how you is pronounce it. Is it quinidine? Uh, it depends what. Yeah, it depends yeah. what they used. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Anti-malarial drugs, yeah. which uh, have kind of stopped well, stopped this. Whack that microphone, Doctor. We're excited about the hookworm. Yeah. The <laughs> stopped uh, the hookworm from sucking the blood earlier, and this can help. Uh, with a with a vaccine in the future, so they're kind of looking at one component of the hookworm, mm. and then they went in a different direction. And I'm really interested in this, not only because these good and evil components of this hookworm, but also how the science was looking in one direction, and then yeah. accidentally found another another direction. Yeah, it's nice stuff. Hookworms, they, they it's mm. they're gross. Yeah, but, but you very know, interesting. Yeah, you know, people but are starting to use leeches again these days. Well, or no, pe- people are actually using well, not not human hookworms, but hookworms that infect pigs as a like mm. so pig whipworm as a treatment for um, chronic bowel, uh, inflammatory bowel disease. So, you know, so the the anti-inflammatory effects of these parasites are fascinating. Mm. Um, Mm. But I think that any study that reveals um, uh, more information about the actual parasite biology to actually look at how we also intervene against the very important public health issue of hookworm infection, you know, is kind of actually really significant. And that's what these researchers were saying, that they kind of thought we were looking at the, the, the very nitty gritty components of the hookworm to look towards asthma and Crohn's disease and celiac disease things, but this is more important for... Well, not more important, yeah. but it, uh, yeah. it it's a different component. Cool stuff. Dr. Ray? Yeah. Uh, Dr. Shane? Uh, well, not talking about parasites. Um, I hey. actually... Uh, <laughs> which was really cool, but I want to talk about something called a maser. And, and it's oh, great. Yeah. Oh, yes. When, when, yes. When, Hold on. Don't, you, don't you mean a laser? Exactly. Everyone An gets, amazing laser? No, no. You see, and, 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 and my, my wife last night said the same thing. Oh, they have, a, they have a new maser. And she went, don't you mean laser? And actually, so a maser is a microwave version of a laser. So it's a laser that operates mm-hmm. at, at microwave frequencies. And what people don't know is the maser was actually invented first. It's in the ni- daddy. In, in 1954. It and it, it actually enabled... The invention Sorry, of the laser. Sorry, is this like the hipster laser? Like, no, you know, is this no, like, no, no, no. like mazes were before lasers were cool? Like- no, no, actually, so <laughs> microwave technology had to come up with other ways to transmit microwaves. They use oscillating crystals and other ways because you can use microwave, if you have very strong microwave frequencies that are one, microwave emissions that are one frequency, you can use it for communication, for astronomy and quantum mechanics. People and physicists like to use them as well. But the reason why we didn't hear the maser was they invented the maser and they invented the laser. But when they invented the maser, it, it worked great, but it either needed a really high vacuum or insanely low temperatures. And so, it, and they never really got around that device limitations. So when they invented the laser, they went, oh, wait, they started also, they initially started with things that were vacuums or low temperatures, but they eventually figured out how to get lasers to work at room temperature. But masers never really did that. So to remind folks, Mm -hmm. lasers stand for light amplification through stimulated emission of radiation. And so what that really means is you have to take a material, which is normally called a gain material, and you have to generate photons from it. But you do it in a particular way, and so it's stimulated emission to get radiation. What that really means is you use light to make light. So you actually take a material, you get it to excite the electrons in it, and every time it excites an electron and the electron relaxes back, you get a photon of exactly the same light you started with. So you shoot one bit of light at a block of material, think of, let's say the original lasers were rubies, and you would get duplicated photons and you'd make the same photon and you'd make light again and again and again and the other thing about a laser is it's in a cavity that oscillates so you make all these light little photons they're bouncing off each other and eventually you bleed some off into the laser beam that you want to use 
Now, masers sounds great as well, but they're more complicated. They don't just need photons. They need a magnetic field as well to make it work. So what these researchers from Imperial College did was they actually figured out a way to make a a maser out of a material that would keep going. Because normally... People did try to make a room temperature laser, but they made it out of a fancy organic material, and it would just break down. Mm. So they actually made it out of diamond. And so you take a diamond, and, 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 and so diamond on its own, if you shoot it with light, doesn't actually make the photons you need. So they, they dope the diamond with a nitrogen. You, nitrogen, you get what's called a nitron valency electron. And, and you actually are able to make a maser. It's kind of crazy. So they shoot a laser at a diamond. It's called a pumping laser. And from there, they're able to, with, with a big magnetic field at room temperature, able to make microwave lasers or masers. And they were able to run it for 10 hours with no signal degradation. And, 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 and what it means is, because diamonds don't get that hot, went up to 35C. It runs at room temperature. So there, there's still some limitations they're getting over, but this has, in terms of well, they'd like to run it for longer, they still have to have a big magnetic field, but the, the thing is it's the chance for a disruptive technology because even the other ways they generate microwaves now for microwave to communication or for astronomy still need low-temperature systems. And, and so what's interesting is this is um, an area where this type of technology for diamond is not something that came out of the blue. It's actually uh, a way to that's been used in quantum communication and quantum computing for quite a while because when you have nitron valencies in diamond you can generate photons in a very controlled way in fact even i believe dr shane may have been part of making the first commercial quantum communication device using diamond based nitron valence that was a long time ago yeah and and so it is a technology that's out there but it's uh, for for physicists to be able to pull this across and to make something that might be a disruptive technology Mm. for for microwave Mm. No, it's 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 amazing um, how ama- amazing how much uh, we're still learning about how to make light in very specific ways with sp- specific properties. It's not easy to do. People think it's easy generally, but the sort of light you want to make in these circumstances is very very detailed and very specific, and that's hard. It's really hard. But uh, so tell me, what would Doctor Evil do with this kind of oh, laser? Yeah. A microwave version of the laser? Come on. That is just amazing stuff. You, anyway. you could, I'm thinking really big Jiffy Pop popcorn. <laughs> 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 okay, I want to tell you about something. This, this is, I'll tell you a little story first before I give you this piece of news because this kind of, um, this, this really sang to me because when I was in um, high school, I remember going to my, um, I think it was year nine high school teacher and saying, you know, you've just told us that all the planets came from this protoplanetary disk, you know, in the sun, shortly after the sun formed. Um, why do they all seem to have such different compositions if they all came from the same material? And the teacher kind of gave me one of those looks like, I really hate that you're in my class. And then <laughs> I so, remember that look. Yeah, yeah, you remember that look, right? <laughs> yeah. And you get every now and then. Wait, the answer wasn't centrifugal separation? No. <laughs> okay. No, it wasn't. Um, and in fact, you know, this is something that people have struggled with uh, for a while because there's there's a number of theories around it. But to be honest, it's, it's one of those things where it is a bit difficult to work out why we are, you know, on one rocky planet and the other ones in our solar system are actually quite substantially different to us in composition. And so there's a, there's a new group out of the University of Copenhagen that have, well, a group that have put out a new paper. I'm sure they're not new. They might be. Um, and this was actually published um, just over the last week in, um, in Nature, I believe. And what they did was they looked at a number of meteorites from various, um, various other planetary bodies that we have here on Earth. So you often find bits of Mars on Earth, which is due to collisions that occur on Mars and then a big bit of rock 
blows out and eventually gets to Earth. And they have a look at the ages of these rocks and certain basically calcium isotopes, so certain radioactive isotopes in these rocks to determine when they were formed. And the idea they've come up with, which I have to say I kind of like, and it's, it's, it's sort of hard to really lock onto, is that these different planets stopped forming at different times. And so the reason that uh, they're different in composition is that so all of certain types of material were used up and then that planet stopped being made. So it was just made of that stuff. And then later... Um, another planet stopped being made at a later date, but it had different material that was still available, and so it was made up more of that stuff, and so on. And when they look at these these particular calcium isotopes, it kind of indicates that um, that this this tracks actually with the timing of when these different planets were formed or when they were finalised in their formation. So it's just a slightly more nuanced version of. You know, some of the, you know, as, as Ray, you correctly pointed out, there's a range of different methodologies that sort of say this is how this stuff might have separated throughout this disk. But, you know, then you find all sorts of other curious things at the moment in asteroids and yeah. Kuiper Belt objects and that to just sort of turn all this on its head. So it's an interesting new sort of way of looking at it. And the, the isotope sort of work sort of tracks with that. So it says, yeah, this is this old. This, is, this stopped at that point. So maybe we stopped cooking that one there, but there were still some other ingredients that that one never got mm-hmm. that were used in other planets. Does that mean, and, and this is, of course, obviously impossible now to find out, but if you were to able to sample the compositions of the cores of the planets... Would they look more similar? I mean, I know you have yeah, recycled yeah, from the crust. No, that's a, it's a very interesting question. In fact, I think, you know, one of the reasons why, um, you know, the asteroid belt and the Kuiper belt are so interesting to us is that they don't have that dynamic process changing the material over a protracted mm. period. I mean, you go out and find yourself a nice bit of, bit of rock in the Kuiper belt. It is in the state it was in when the solar system first formed, and it has not changed. So, you know, you've got, you've got yourself a really good methodology there to look at the history. And as you look at different parts of, of the solar system, you can build up a, a map. So it's one of the things that was so amazing, of course, when, when the flyby happened of Pluto, is just seeing how more detailed and dynamic that, that particular body was compared to what people expected given its location. So, yeah. Anyway, take that, uh, Year 9 science teacher. It was a good question after all. <laughs> so, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo, folks, on Triple R. We're going to take a break and we'll be back in just a moment talking to our first guest, who is a professor from Deakin University. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. It's a science show. If you haven't heard us before, uh, we have in the studio with us now Professor Lee Acklin. She's the director of the Centre for Cellular and Molecular Biology, the deputy director of molecular and medical research, and the school at the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at Deakin University. Lee, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much, Shane. It's great to have you in. I, I mean, you work in an area which I think is just absolutely fascinating. It seems to be so almost new in a way. This whole thing around pregnancy and the changes that can occur to, to body long-term as a result. Can you start off by giving us a bit of a picture of the sort of traditional understanding of what, what occurs with regards to changes in pregnancy? I mean, what's the normal thinking around this? Well, I suppose some of the normal thinking is that you go through pregnancy and then afterwards you revert back to pre-pregnancy. Mm. But, of course, I think most women who have gone through pregnancy will uh, find that they're not quite the same as they were 
But it is quite hard to put your finger on sometimes what's changed. Hmm. I mean, I mean, the, the body goes through an extraordinary sort of not quite trauma, but uh, uh, quite a well, maybe it is for those who've had children in the room. But but it's it's it is quite a big effect that happens on the body over absolutely period, with all so. those hormonal change. It's a very big effect hmm. that the woman experiences and. Is there an expectation with that that it's just... I suppose what I'm asking is, is it just the strain of having have the child that they're experiencing there? Is that is that a big part of it or are we looking for something else? Well, I suppose being a scientist, I'm looking at more the physiological changes in pregnancy and after pregnancy. Mm. So not so much the strain, but actually the hormones that are, are produced during pregnancy, estrogens mm. and progesterones, mm. things like that, yeah. that are affecting women during pregnancy and then the changes as they go through birth. And yeah. in the postpartum period. Can, can you talk us through that cycle um, from, you know, when you first get sort of, when you're first pregnant? I mean, what, what sort of changes are occurring biochemically in the body for, in order to have a child? Well, I suppose I'll just talk about two hormones, estrogen yep. and progesterone. So those hormones increase uh, over the course of the pregnancy and then at the birth they, they decrease. Mm-hmm. So we haven't actually looked at those hormones themselves in our study, we've looked at how they might be responsible for epigenetic changes mm. that occur during pregnancy and what the effect of those, the drop in those hormones might be afterwards. Right. So we don't have any direct proof that the hormones are, are changing the epigenetics, but it looks like this is what's happening. All right, let's, let's dive into this epigenetics thing because I think this is the part that's, that's really of interest. What is, I mean, we've, we've talked about this before a few times on the show, but just in, in case, you know, one of our listeners, maybe my mum or someone, missed that episode, epigenetics, what's the difference between epigenetics and when we just talk about genetics? Well, genetics is something that we're very familiar with because we know so much about the gene, the fact that the gene holds the information that produces the molecular motors of our body, the proteins. Mm-hmm. So the genes contain all that information. And so the genes have a are like a blueprint for the way we function now epigenetics is not to do with changes in the genes epigenetics is to do with how the activity of the genes can be changed so it's not changing the the code in the genes but it's changing the way the genes are are active or not Hmm. and i think of it as a switch so so how i mean why is that the case i mean why why do you have a scenario where those two things are distinguished i mean it it seems to me just you know as a a lay physics guy who doesn't understand biology very well as people who listen know um why why is one not directly linked to the other i mean or or are they well they are they are linked because they both are linked to genes Mm. but i suppose we've become so accustomed to genes and mutations and mutations causing diseases that we don't quite see the epigenetic effects or the epigenetic scenario as well as that. So epigenetics is where external factors, which could be the hormones of pregnancy or even uh, factors like nutrition, can alter the activity of genes. So, so just, I mean, for, uh, just to put a fine point on this, recently um, one of the International Space Station astronauts who came back um, who has a twin... Um, they did a lot of genetic testing on him and they found that 
the the particular expressions of certain genes that he had were different to his identical twin brother. I mean, this is what we're talking about, isn't it? That's this, correct, This thing where yes. the environment yes. of space for him, re- it messed with a large number, actually, of his, something like, you know, 15, 20% of his, his genes were modified in their expression as a result of being in space. Absolutely, yes. That's a very good example. And so presumably if he was an identical twin, mm. the gene sequences would be the same. Yeah, yeah. So therefore the differences must be attributed to other factors and those other factors were uh, derived from environmental signals. So in, in the case of pregnancy then, which is what you've been looking at, is it it's the internal different factors that are affecting the gene expression of being pregnant? That's, that's right. So uh, people have often... Well, they've known that uh, external environmental factors like... Um, endocrine disruptors from the environment, pollutants can cause epigenetic effects or even uh, insufficient nutrition mm. during uh, the pregnancy of a woman can cause effects. But now we've shown that actually the, the body themselves, the normal physiological changes are causing epigenetic effects and that will influence the way the genes behave. Now, now what does that mean post-pregnancy? I mean, is this something to just goes away and returns to normal or is this is this likely to be a permanent shift in in a person's physiology well that's a good question because in our study we uh, only went up to 20 weeks postpartum okay. yep. and at that stage we saw some epigenetic changes had reverted back to the, uh, po- the the pregnancy levels but in some cases they hadn't other changes were still maintained so to answer your question, we need to do another study of mm. a much longer time period so we can and, monitor these and in changes. And ter- in terms of the changes, I mean, you mentioned that some women just feel, they feel different, you know, something, something shifted. But can, have we put our finger on what some of those actual changes are in terms of, you know, is there the change in, I don't know, their blood pressure? Or is there a real effect that we can measure that says, yeah, something really has changed in your body, it's different? What we measured in our epigenetic study was a, a switch called histone methylation mm-hmm. and that switch controls the activity of many genes so at this stage we haven't measured <clears throat> the gene activity themselves the activity of the genes themselves we've just measured the the switch that controls that so our next study is to look at the actual genes yeah. but we know that the um, histone methylation that we find is what switches genes on and off and so we can expect that uh, there'll be major changes in gene expression. Does this mean that when, when a woman gets pregnant rapidly after an existing... So they have one child and then they get pregnant relatively soon after that, that maybe that's an easier scenario for the body because those changes are still in play? Is that something we can, we can determine? That, uh, or or is, it, is it better to let the body settle back into its normal state? Is, do, we, do we have any idea no, what that looks like? So. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think we can answer that question because we're so far away from understanding yeah. exactly what these changes are because there are literally thousands and thousands of genes that uh, would be altered uh, with histone methylations it's a bit like it's a switch mm, so we mm. what we've done is we've uncovered this master switch yep. which is like putting uh pressing your foot on the accelerator or the brake of gene expression wow yeah so just the naive question about about your study i mean you were you're looking at epigenetic changes in, in pregnancy based on the idea that pregnancy is kind of the big change but epigenetics is about environmental factors so how do you normalize or account for all the different environmental factors all the different people you studied had or 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 or, because so being pregnant is one big factor that's affecting your your epigenetics but 
people's different nutrition, what they eat during pregnancy, all those things come into play too. Absolutely. So how do you yes. how do you isolate what you've tracked in this increase in methylation as being from hormone drive hormonal changes versus environmental factors other than the hormonal changes and forgive me if that's naive no no it's not naive at all it's absolutely it's probably quite true in fact there's evidence that nutritional factors will affect women uh during pregnancy and that will have an epigenetic effect in fact it'll even affect their offspring Mm. that that was that was going to be my next question actually is that now that you know that this switches you know, this is occurring. What does that mean for the offspring? Does is there a down the line effect? That, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think it's always been known that the maternal nutrition has significant yeah. consequences for fetal health. And there was a, a situation in the in the Second World War where a cohort of Dutch women were exposed to poor nutrition, right? And they found that their children had higher incidences of, of um, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Yeah. That was so attributed to maternal... To their, yeah, their nutrition, yeah. Yeah, malnutrition. Yeah. And recently there was a, a paper published that uh, found some epigenetic changes in the genes in these offspring. Mm. So I think we're building up the links. I guess I had one question which I always um, consider when I'm looking at these studies, such as, you know, Seamus mentioned the astronaut going into space, experiencing a, a highly stressful situation for up to a year. Pregnancy, your body's experiencing a high stress situation or big changes for, you know, a year. Is is this any, are these any different? Like, it's kind of like human body responds to very dramatic environment doesn't quite return to normal like mm. like, like i guess maybe because your study only looked 20 weeks out it's kind of you know how far out would you have to go to say that these changes are somewhat permanent due to pre and post pregnancy well you'd probably want to go for 20 30 years it's fascinating Lee. I, I think um you know that the, the astronaut example I, I love because it's one where it says to me it just says the human body is amazing at optimization it says we are really good at optimizing the environmental conditions that we we can undertake and things that we can do and our and our bodies are highly adaptive and we change as needed to they can although you could argue that uh adverse conditions could predispose towards disease so yeah. i think this is very important and yeah. with the astronauts we know for sure that uh, stress hormones corticosteroids can cause epigenetic effects mm. so that may to some extent account for the changes in the astronauts yeah Although i think I don't and, know much and about mic- that. microgravity uh Lee, look it's great uh, chatting to you about this i think the um the, this whole area this, there's so much more to do in this whole maternal health area i think we, you know the i suspect the funding in this area is probably a bit underdone compared to some other areas um especially given how important it is for our species but uh, thanks so much for coming in thanks and good much, luck Shane. with the work Professor Lee Ackland from the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at Deakin University. We're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment with our next couple of guests from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. Jeez, am I excited? I think I am. It's because I had to run to the bathroom during the break and it always gets my heart rate up. 
In the studio now, though, we have Dr. Kate Sutherland, who is a group leader, and Dr. Sarah Best, who's a postdoc in the Stem Cells and Cancer Division of the Walter and Liza Hall Institute and also the University of Melbourne. Kate, Sarah, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having us. Good morning. It's great to have you guys in. The work that I saw, um, I think it was during the week or a week or so ago, that uh, you guys are doing just looked absolutely amazing. It's around trying to find ways to, you know, look and, and test for cancers and so forth. So what we might do first is you, you've chosen a particularly aggressive and problematic cancer. So I might start with you, Kate. Which cancer are you looking at and why have you chosen of, of the myriad array of wonderful cancers out there that you know we all hate which one did you choose and why yes so our group studies lung cancer which is the leading cause of cancer related deaths worldwide mm -hmm. and in fact in australia more people die of lung cancer than they do of breast prostate and ovarian cancer combined wow. yep. so it's really um you know it has a huge um impact can, can i can i stop there just for, sorry to interrupt but can you tell me what proportion of people who die of lung cancer are non-smokers sarah do you want to answer that uh, one I, it's about 20 percent yeah, uh, yeah. I, mean, um, I just think it's really important for people to be aware of this mm. number that it's not a lifestyle disease for everyone no, no. that's right yeah. and i think that's why the disease has a bad stigma yeah. because people associate it with smoking and indeed you know a large percentage of non-smokers um can also get lung cancer mm. and actually that percentage is on the rise um and particular in women too right yep. right and and with lung i mean why is lung cancer a particularly problematic cancer i mean we've seen over the last two three decades so much amazing advance in the way we treat cancers i mean what's the deal with this particular lung cancer you've chosen why is it so problematic so i think it's twofold um probably one of the reasons is that patients um when they present in the clinic um with symptoms the disease is already at a very late stage. So unlike with breast cancer where we have the screening with mm -hmm. the mammography, um, we don't have such screening modalities for lung cancer patients. Okay. So they present with very late stage aggressive disease. Mm. Um, and I think there's, um, you know, there's limited treatment options for quite a number of patients. So mm. that's where our study um, has tried to address some of these issues. So, Sarah, I might turn to you. In terms of the the testing, like, how do you know that you have lung cancer? I mean, what's the what's the traditional process there? Well, I think patients normally present to their GP with a persistent cough or something right. not feeling quite right, and then it's up to the GP to really assess that and and move forward to a diagnosis through a number of different screening techniques. And are those screenings typically imaging or are they blood-based? So at the moment, the screening for lung cancer is imaging. So we'll do x-rays or CT scans would really identify if a lung cancer is present. Right. Because um, as an imaging guy from my old days, it kind of bothers me that you have to have it big enough for an imaging mm. system to see it before you... I mean, that, that, at exactly. that point, you're kind of in trouble, right? I mean, yeah, that's... that's right. Yeah. So, Sarah, tell us what, what are you guys doing? Because you're looking at more something you do with the blood. Yes, yeah, so we were um, able to determine the presence of lung cancer based on a different metabolic profile in the blood, so we were able to use um, 
GCMS. <laughs> what the? <laughs> <laughs> so mass spec- spectroscopy screening yep. to identify in the plasma of blood um, some breadcrumbs, so to speak, some alterations in sugars of the blood that really detected the presence of a lung cancer compared to the absence. Okay, so mass spectroscopy of the blood, though, I mean, just to unpack that for people a bit, we're, we're talking about looking at the individual elements or molecules, all of them, that are in the blood. I mean, what what does that look like? How many uh, you know, I've looked at a few things with mass spec and usually there were three things in them. You know, like, <laughs> what, what are we looking at in terms of blood? So we work with uh, experts at the Bio21 Institute and they were able to perform this mass spec for us. So we were, we, we performed studies to separate the plasma from the whole blood mm-hmm. and then um, our collaborators, Dr David um, D'Souza and Professor Malcolm McConville, really uh, looked at the spectra of all of the sugars that were present in the blood and comparing uh, blood of cancer-bearing versus non-cancer-bearing, we were able to detect differences. Mm. So then what makes this particular particular cancer able to be seen in blood? How can you tell that it's a lung cancer, not any of the other kinds of cancers? So this is something that we're really following up on on our new studies. So we're going to look at a few different types of lung cancer to see if the particular genetic alterations that we were looking at caused these specific changes, whether it was lung cancer in general or whether it was Mm. the presence of Mm. a cancer. And so that's something that we're really following up on at the moment. Yeah. And What's the deal with regards to the timing? I mean, it's it's one thing if the person's well and truly into a developed cancer state, but presumably for this blood test to be viable, it needs to be able to pick things up when the, shall we say, the concentrate, I'm not sure what the term is, yeah. but, you know, the amount of cancer in the body is low. How How is that factoring in at the moment with the sort of the testing you're doing? Can you see it when it's in a really small state in, in the body? Maybe I'll answer that one. Yeah, so the study focused on when we know the cancer is, Mm. you know, there and large. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, So now the lab is really focused on looking in our preclinical models and in patient samples um, if we can detect the cancer at a very early stage because obviously this is what we need to um, be a viable um, entity in Mm. the clinic. Mm. Uh, I beat Dr. Crystal the microphone. Um, So... (laughs) I was wondering about uh, there must be a large number of sugars in the blood and that while one can look at all these different spectra, which would take a while, I also wondered about concentration and the implications for large-scale data analysis here. Is this something that Hmm. you're looking at or... I guess we were surprised that we were able to really see a different signature of these sugars in... um, you know, cancer-bearing versus um, normal um, preclinical models. So that was really exciting at the time because it was not what we um, expected. Um, So I think, it, yeah, it probably will come down to concentrations. And as Sarah mentioned, we think these tumours have a distinct metabolite signature which really has implicated this this particular... um, biomarker that we see in the plasma so you know that's the focus now to really see if it's specific for this particular cancer type or whether it's could be broadly applied 
And I guess this is the promise of the field of metabolomics. You know, I mean, this, people are doing metabolomics studies where you can you can you can literally screen for the hundreds of, of sugar molecules in the blood. You know, under all these different disease states, and and some of those big questions are around: well, is it specific, or is it just general body responding to disease? And so, I guess going forward, what are the models that you can use to test this? Because I guess one of the things about science is, unless you've got a way of studying it in the lab, you can't a way to ask the questions you can't answer the questions because you can't go to a person and say well do you have cancer yet or not <laughs> you know you've got to have a way mm. of studying it in a laboratory so what's your what's your what's your group going to do to actually answer those questions yeah so we have lots of different preclinical models of different types of lung cancers that are driven by different mutations. So we're really going to tease apart these different muta- um, these different models to see if we can see that same signature or whether maybe we see a whole different signature that relates to a whole different type of lung cancer. So I think we have a lot of tools available to us to address these types of questions and also look at the early events, can we see this signature at a very early stage when we only see a few malignant cells present in the lung? Mm. And I think these studies will be really important in moving forward. For the work you've done so far, how how important has it been that, you know, obviously patients have, you know, come in and said, I'll help? I mean, presumably you're, you're actually dealing with quite a range of people here who are seriously ill. So our studies moving forward are really looking at um, patient samples and obtaining blood and lung cancer material. And so it's vastly important that uh, if a patient is considering or having to go into surgery and a doctor asks them, are you happy for your tissue to go to research? Yes. (laughs) Yes is the answer because we can get so much information from this material and it's just... um, and Not ma- surpassed by anything I was going to say, yeah. the material generally is thrown out otherwise, right? I mean, it's, it's literally, you know, it goes in, there's some big bin yeah. somewhere at the bottom of most hospitals. <laughs> um, a, what do they call it, Dr. Because it's a biological hazard bin or something. Right? <laughs> a big it's yellow bin. A big yellow bin. <laughs> and, and this stuff, I mean, this stuff is just an absolute glory pot of yes, information yep. for you guys, right? I mean, it's, it's got all this, this information that you can yank out. And presumably, you know, when we think back at all the testing that is done normally, I mean, someone ponied up their samples for that. I mean, that's the reason we can do it now, right? So exactly. I mean, it's important to do that. How do you, um, how did you guys get to this point? I mean, was this, were you looking at, was this what you were going after or, <laughs> you know, fess up? Were you, did you kind of stumble across this or was, did you have this as a hypothesis that you went after very specifically or did this sort of come out of a sort of different idea set? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we were interested, so they did, they've done a lot of sequencing of mm-hmm. lung cancer patients and looking at what kind of mutational signatures these tumours have. And they've come up with this huge list of the types of mutations that are present in different um, lung cancers. But we don't know which of these mutations are really driving the tumour and the growth of the tumour or which ones are just kind of hanging on for the ride. So this is where we sort of started our initial studies. So one of the mutations that we looked at, no one really knew what role this mutation played in lung cancer and lung adenocarcinoma. So we were able to show that actually this mutation is a real driver of lung cancer growth. Mm. And that's the link with the the metabolomics is that um, this mutation drives a a distinct um, metabolic um, profile to the cancer cells. Yeah, interesting. 
So I'm sure a question and maybe a lot of listeners are asking you is how long is it going to be? What's the, the mid to long? I know you, you're all rolling your eyes at me asking <laughs> that question, but, you know, what's your dream? How long do you think it would be before maybe possibly this sort of blood test can be rolled out commercially? Do you want to answer that, so, Sarah? Uh, we would be hoping for about three to five years. So our follow-up really studies... Yeah. Well, work hard. Our follow-up studies are really pushing this forward and looking at a mm. larger variety of things as well. So we would hope that this kind of testing could reach the clinic then within five years' time. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, that, that is, we usually don't ask that question, Dr Lynn, because usually when people say 20 <laughs> years, everyone gets upset. Um, but that, that, short, that short time frame, so that, that's really interesting. Look, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today. It's, um, it's one of those areas where I always find that a great sensitivity towards the whole area of lung cancer mm. because of that 20% factor yeah, and yeah. The, the crap that people in that yeah. 20% have to cop. And not only that, I mean, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I suspect the way the money comes into this yes. area of research is also a bit shitty mm-hmm. because people don't like to fund things that are seen as lifestyle choices. And it's like, well, actually, there's a lot of people who are not getting this by choice. It's just, it's just happening. Mm. Well, no one gets it by choice, but just happening so thanks so much for coming in i hope uh we can get you back in three years when you announce the uh three to five did you say sarah three sorry yeah, um but let's let's just push it for you said you worked hard let's see if we can get it in three um it, it's it's great news and and if you can extend it to other cancers of course that will be just um spectacular yeah. so good luck with that work Thanks very much. Thanks for having us. Dr. Kate Sutherland and Dr. Sarah Best uh, from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute in the University of Melbourne doing amazing work in cancer detection. We're going to take a break for some short announcements, folks, and then we'll be back with just a little bit more news for you before the end of the program. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Lyndon, you had a little bit more news that you uh, wanted to talk about. Yes, Dr. Shane, it's been a very exciting week in the Earth environmental science space because, of course, as everybody knows, everybody has it marked on their calendar. (laughs) Friday was World Meteorological Day. Oh, it was. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Everybody had their cumulus cake and looked up in the sky. Got very excited. Yes. We we had a cumulonimbus cake. (laughs) Oh, very high. Uh, and, of course, the day before that, the 22nd of March, was World Water Day. I don't know if anybody... Who's making up these days? The World I had Me- a glass of water. <laughs> world Meteorological Day I was... I saw some water. Um, ...developed by the World Meteorological Organisation. The 23rd of March was when um, WMO was formed. <laughs> you are the beating the crap again. out of the microphones Sorry, today. Everybody. Yeah. Sit on my hands. I just... It's been an I exciting I want to know who's way. in charge of making these days. Yeah, I'm sure that yeah, anyway. people, I, I, I don't know, but World Meteorological Day, World Water Day, yesterday was Earth Hour, all these kinds of things are happening. But I did see a piece based on World Water Day that uh, was looking, there's a there's this challenge that's come out, this X Prize. I don't know if anybody's heard oh, of yeah, the, the X Prize. X Prizes, yep, yep. yeah. So there's one X Prize that's about uh, water, trying to trying to get water from the atmosphere, right? This is sort of a competition, mm-hmm. a global oh, competition. Yeah, did you see that? Yes. Yeah, so uh, in in the last oh, week... yeah. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. No? No, yes. no, go, go. This is good. This is good. <laughs> I feel like there's going to be some... No, this is good. Obviously, I just go read this article and I thought it was really interesting that they've announced the finalists of this competition. It's a $1.5 million competition to try to get uh, some new technology to help extract water for developing countries out of the atmosphere. Mm. And the University of Newcastle is one of five teams, a team from the University of Newcastle, one of five teams, the only Australian team to make it to the finals. That's great. Yeah, it's pretty mm. exciting. You don't seem that convinced though, Dr. No, Jane. no, I just saw, um, I think one of the testings they do in that, uh, I'm, 
I'm very convinced because one of the things they have to do is they have to do it, I think, some of the testing in the desert. Yeah. Which is just, you know, like it's not like sitting there in the rainforest with a no. big, big pot. You know, like right. this is this is seriously dry air. That's right. And, they have to use yeah. 100% renewable energies. They've got mm. renewable energy. They've got to extract 2,000 litres of water per day from the atmosphere uh, and it can't cost more than two cents per litre. <sighs> so this team in Newcastle, what they're doing, uh, I think... What they said, most teams are cooling down the water, right? Cooling down water from yep. the atmosphere. But this team, what they're doing is they're kind of sucking in water from a, oh, it's called a, a decus, desiccant, desiccant, like one of those things. Desiccant? Like a de... Yeah. Like a uh, desiccator. Yeah, desiccate, like a dehumidifier yep. that yeah. you kind think, of put in your house. Think of it as like the silica gel, the little packets you find in tortillas yeah. that say do not eat. Those are desiccants. Those ones. So if you, they suck the water into that overnight and then they use this team from Newcastle are using solar heat during the day, the water that they've sucked in to, to heat it up and then get, um, it, then, mm. and then get it back down again when it yeah, cools yeah. down. And so the Very announcement cool. of the, the testing's happening in the next few months and then they'll announce the winner in August, which I thought was pretty exciting and timely. Well, we will, we will have to let people know how Newcastle goes. I know. We might get in touch with them so they can cool. tell us all about it. Uh, I saw a small study this week which was looking at the way in which children perceive scientists um, in oh, terms uh, of if you go into a classroom <laughs> and ask kids to draw a picture of a scientist, who or what do they draw? And in Tony Stark? Is it Tony Stark? Well, in the 1960s and 70s, um, 99% of children drew a man. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So if you go into a classroom yeah, okay. in the yeah. 60s and 70s and said, you know, um, you know, draw me this picture of a scientist, 99% of children drew a man. However, mm-hmm. five decades later, and this study looks at the decadal change, yep. you know, depending on the kind of science that they do, up to 50% of children are now drawing women. That's a very, very nice Which I think here. says we're moving in the right direction in yeah. terms of the way in which women are perceived in science. Did they break that down into types of science? They did. Crystal? So they yeah. looked at life scientists, <laughs> physicists, engineers. And so, that, you know, so if you ask... You know, if you asked you're a biologist, you got more women than you did men. But that also reflects that there are more women biologists than there are in other engineering and physicist um, fields. But I think the fact that you know more than ten or fifteen percent of pe- of children still drew a female physicist um, sort of does say that perceptions are changing and that we're moving in the right direction in terms mm. of profiling uh, women in STEM fields. Okay, but how many boys drew female scientists versus girls drew female scientists? Yes, I think girls are more likely to draw uh, female scientists but we are seeing again a trend towards more boys drawing women in science as well so, so it's moving in the right direction we're not there yet so yeah. we still need to put That's our great. efforts That's into great. profiling how many kids drew an engineer is still driving a train Oh, I, don't think, I, don't think, I don't think I've got that detail from this study. Right. I, but would, I would like to see some of these photos though and just see how, how we look. Like, do we, whether it's forgetting gender for a second, do we still look a bit freaky? Like and we're all wearing lab coats. We are still generally yeah. all wearing lab coats. However, I think there's a lot of you know, people doing great things on Instagram yeah. and you know, on Twitter to say this is what a scientist looks like to try and break down those stereotypes. Yeah, and not it. just about women, about people of colour, people with disabilities, about the fact that there are incredibly diverse um, 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 types of people working in science. I love it. Thank you, Dr. Crystal. It's a very nice way for us to end the show. Thank you so much for uh, listening to an hour of science. We do appreciate your time. We will talk to you again next week. And we'll sure still, we're still going to have science next week? Even we will have science next week. In fact, uh, next well. week we have an interview with a lady named Sarah Majarid from the University of Southern California, which will be particularly good. Until then, have a great Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. And thank you very much for listening to Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.